Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Without question, this is one of my favorite conversations to date. Today, my guest is a gentleman named Danny Southwick. And though you might not know that name yet, I can promise you, you will know it very soon. Danny is a psychologist and is an expert on topics like talent and grit. He has studied under and published work with the acclaimed psychologist Dr. Angela Duckworth at the University of Pennsylvania. Most of you will know Angela Duckworth from her extremely popular TED Talk on Grit or her best-selling book, which is titled Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Danny is now working with Angela to continue to grow her research and to continue to positively influence the lives of others with their research in psychological science. Danny is obviously an accomplished academic. However, he's also an accomplished athlete. Danny has quarterback teams in the Arena Football League for over 12 years, and he even spent time early in his career with the NFL's Oakland Raiders. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Danny. I think each of you are going to enjoy Danny. You'll find in today's episode that Danny is gifted at storytelling. He is wildly passionate about the topics he studies. It feels as if Danny has a personal relationship with each of the topics he studies because he does. And he has the unique ability to explain his research in a way that's not only compelling, but is easy to understand, which is one of the reasons I think you're going to hear a lot more about Danny and his research in the future. Danny, I just want to thank you for being a part of this. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your wisdom. I am tremendously proud to be a small part of this conversation. So thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Danny Southwick. Guys, before we get going, I just want to remind you, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast, please share the podcast, subscribe to our socials at Examined Athlete on Instagram and Twitter. We're much more active on Instagram, but either one works to keep up with what we're doing. You can check out more about the show at www.examinedathlete.com, your support, Your kind words, your feedback will absolutely never go unnoticed. I promise you that. Thanks, guys. I enjoy seeing people like yourself flex their intellect, and I've watched a number of your interviews in I'll just give you the compliment up front. You have such a command and deep understanding of the material. It just makes it a pleasure to watch you describe your research. And more than that, to do it in a concise, very clear manner. It's been wildly impressive. And it's just been a pleasure to prepare for this, man. So I just want to give you that compliment. Thanks a lot. Looking forward to jumping in and and talking about what we're going to talk about. So, Absolutely. Well, let's just get it out of the way right up front. Angela Duckworth, how does a, not to be reductive, but a semi-pro football player end up working with one of the most celebrated psychologists of our generation? My kind of pathway into psychology is a long and winding journey. I never imagined that I would be getting a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania or kind of going as long in academia as, as I have as far. I grew up as somebody that just basically just wanted to play football. And you could tell by my high school transcripts and most of my college transcripts that that was what I wanted to do. After kind of 
objectively disappointing college career because I had a lot of scholarships going into college, like quarterback at different big universities and, and, and not living up to, you know, what I had hoped or I think what people expected of me. I ended up kind of towards the very tail end of my college career, ended up kind of turning things around. And I think that a psychological shift was a big part of that and ended up getting signed by the Oakland Raiders. Now I was, I was with the organization for a couple of years. I was on the roster for shorter than that. But after, after that kind of kind of ran its course, I ended up playing in the Arena Football League for a while, actually still doing it a little bit. And uh, my wife, she said, well, you know, it, it's fine that you want to play Arena to get into, you know, see if you can get back in the NFL and that. But she's like, you should pursue your education. I got an MBA. I, I actually, I finished my bachelor's degree. And then I got an MBA at, at UC Irvine and I enjoyed it. But I knew that it wasn't what I loved. And I really, because of football, because of sports, because of my personal transformation was always you know, fascinated in, in psychology, reading a lot of books that were written by psychologists, books like Mindset by Carol Dweck or Flow by Me, Hitchick Set Me High, or, or books that covered psychology, books like The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle or Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, there's, I read hundreds of books and I knew I was interested in psychology. So I, the day I graduated, right when I finished my last project for my business school, I, I got an email somehow. And, and I must have ended up on the University of Pennsylvania's list because I took some survey at some point and it said, apply to the Masters of Positive Psychology. And I thought, well, this looks pretty cool. It's a one-year program. I could still play football while I'm doing it. And I applied. That night, I filled out the application, just sent it in like right before the deadline. Ended up getting in. And I was surprised. I was like, oh, you know, given my academic background. But I think at this point, I had done much better in business school and my application, I, I don't, I've never spoken to them about this, but my application probably, they could tell that I, at this point, I knew myself. I've been reading for for years, you know, psychology books. So, so I was pretty familiar with uh, research. And, and I, so I get in and Angela's one of the instructors there. The very first day, and I'd already seen podcasts of Angela and, you know, the, the paid attention to her work. And the very first day she asked the class, who among you has like a, a hypothesis you are interested in testing? And she was kind of trying to help us start to think about our kind of thesis project the first day. And she's like, anybody raise your hand. I was like, I have an idea. Basically, I said, you know, in, in the past, you you said that deliberate practice and flow are not compatible. And I was like, I disagree with you. <laughs> First thing I ever said to Angela Duckford. But I think she liked that. And we ended up making, becoming friends. And she said, why don't you pursue, have you ever thought about pursuing your PhD? And I was in the middle of you know, my master's program and playing for the Los Angeles KISS arena football team at that time. And she's like, why don't you pursue your PhD? I said, well, I thought about it. She said, well, why don't you think about pursuing your PhD with me? Why don't you try to apply? I was like, Angela, like, kids get independent, like 1%. And she's like, no, you love this. You and I share similar interests. Why don't you apply? See what happens. So I applied, got rejected, but really kind of knew that this is the path I wanted to follow after sports. And I applied again the next year. And, uh, and Angela and I had been working together kind of informally and formally on some things. And I got in. So that was a really long answer to a short question. But I think that's the only way I can explain that my whole life was wanted to be an athlete, wanted to be an athlete, and then found some answers in psychology. And didn't know that the pathway would open up for me to be able to doing the, the level of psychology and working with people that I'm working with today. But geez, I mean, like during a master's program, I had the chance to work with Carol Dweck. You know, she's still a mentor. I've worked with Anders Ericsson, who's since passed. But, you know, and so many other wonderful people. And I don't know if it's just serendipity or what it was, but for whatever reason, pathways that, that never seemed to open up the, quite the way I wanted them to in sports really opened up in psychology. And so I just followed where, where the path led and, and it's where I am today. No, I think that's a great answer. One of the things that I'm just passionate about exploring is how people find their paths. And more than that, 
how you figure out that the path you're on is not your path. I think that's an interesting discussion. And I didn't plan to linger here, but what do you think she saw in you? Obviously, confidence, which I think that comes from the athletic field, that confidence to disagree with someone, you know, stand up and speak to a professor that way. But what do you think she saw in you? I mean, I think my confidence, Canada, this is true for sports. Confidence is an interesting thing. And I'm not sure whether it's a correlate of success or a leading indicator of success or somewhere in between. I think that my confidence in maybe disagreeing with Angela was that I had read a ton, you know, and I had experiences out there. Look, I knew for a fact, like, I loved the little practice and I read Flow, like the book Flow by Csikszentmihalyi, which I uh, advise like any reader that's interested in sports psychology, read that book. And I read it carefully, like, probably multiple times. And I was like, look, I knew that the way Csikszentmihalyi conceptualized Flow was the most difficult things can be the most enjoyable. When I was speaking to her, I felt like I was sharing my convictions based on my practical experience, based on my research. And I think that's what stuck out to her. It certainly wasn't like she didn't go through my transcripts and like, oh, this guy's, you know, he got B's in community college. Let's let's bring him in and spend, you know, thousands of hours with him. No, it was that she had spoken to me. She could tell that I had a level of depth to my thinking that I think that sometimes 23-year-olds don't always have. I mean, I don't think, in fact, I don't think they can have. You know, I was 35 when I was going to grad school. Like, she was an older grad student, and she could tell that I really thought about this. And I think, in addition to similar personalities, she's better than me in every way, but but we, you know, we click. And, you know, we care about the same things, and we think about the world a lot of the same ways. And where we think about the world differently, and there are some areas we think about differently, there's this compatibility to it where I feel like we both get smarter from it. So I think she just saw that I really cared about it. I thought a lot about it. And she she was confident enough in her ability to teach me the academic side because, boy, I was still am quite a work in progress on that front. So I love that story. Now, one of the things I love about your journey is that it progressed over time. This is not a overnight success, which we're going to get into. But I love that anecdote, Danny, because one of the things I tell young people all the time is if you've put in the work, you belong in any room. And I specifically tell that to young people that are having trouble believing themselves. And you have to be careful with confidence and belonging and entitlement. But as long as you've put in that work, knowing that you belong is so, so important to success, at least for me. But let's move into your story a bit. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on your research. But obviously, given the podcast, I want to spend some time on your athletic journey because I think there's some great lessons in your story. And you certainly have, like you've alluded to, a unique ride, let's just say that, a unique journey. You spent time at five different colleges, you transferred six different times, and then you went on to a 12-year professional career in sport where you played for 21 different teams. I've heard you say a number of times that this was about the love of the game, and I know teammates of mine that are still playing in Mexico or playing independent ball, and I know that's true for you. But I also have to imagine that there was a lot of soul searching going on during this period. There was some finding your path. Am I on to something there? Was there some ambient level of uncertainty, some slowly finding your way during that professional career? I think in college, okay, so being on multiple teams as a professional, that is a byproduct of arena football. So I've been on so many of the teams I've been on are like no longer exist. They've just folded. It's just the very best arena players of all time have been on eight or nine teams. It's just, it's just the way that league goes. It's the nature of the league. So I don't know that I controlled a lot of those transfers or a lot of those shifts as a professional. The ones in college were all self-inflicted. So it's really hard to be a good quarterback when you're changing teams every year. So kind of my paradigm coming out of 
high school was that talent wins. And the reason I thought talent wins is because, and, and I, the reason I thought I was successful in high school and I broken records in high school was because I was very talented. And the reason I think I thought that was because I've been told that not, not just by family members, but by like major coaches at major universities, you're so talented, you're more talented than XYZ NFL player. And you're going to come to our school, you're going to start. And I know they, they have to kind of pump you up to get you to their school. But I also thought that some of these people genuinely believed it. If they didn't, they wouldn't have offered me scholarships. What's weird about that is in high school, I had to work really hard to be seen as talented. Like I wasn't always seen as talented growing up. And then, then I kind of had a switch like my junior and senior year where I was in the right situation and I put in a ton of work with the right coaches. And then all of a sudden they start breaking records. And then people tell her, it's only talented, you're talented. And then you kind of forget that. And you start thinking, well, you know, maybe I am kind of special, you know? So I get to college. If any of the listeners are familiar with research on mindset, um, when you believe that your success or that success is a function of, of innate talent, you don't like to face challenge. Uh, you don't like to be exposed to um, situations where you have to learn because if, if you believe that, that success is due to innate talent, then challenges are really just a signal that you don't have it as opposed to a signal that you need to learn more. What people do in you know, experimental studies and field studies is that people tend to, when you face challenge of a fixed mindset, you tend to fold or run or do something else. And boy, that's what I did. So at BYU, you know, I was told I was going to be a starter there at some point, but brought in another quarter, a couple of the quarterbacks. I'll go to Oregon State, which was actually a pretty good school at the time, one of the better schools in the Pac-10. Uh, but there are other quarterbacks there. And rather than competing and staying, I mean, it wasn't like I left like as a junior or a senior. It's like, oh, I really gone through this and you hear stories about Tom Brady, how he didn't start all the way till the senior year. That wasn't my situation. It was like, ah, my summer football, you know, camp at my freshman year isn't going the way I wanted. Let me go to another school. So I went to Dixie State College, competed with athletes that you know didn't really have the same background that I had, started for two years there, then went to University of Utah, didn't start there immediately. So I transferred again, transferred to Occidental. So I just kind of I bounced around. By the time I was a, a senior in college, and by the way, I was on the field for most of my senior year at Occidental. This is a Division three school that has fewer fans, arguably, than my high school team. My high school team might have given Occidental a run for its money. And I'm the backup here. So, like, how does this happen? How do you go from – and I started doing some soul searching at that point. And I didn't read psychology books, but I read, like, uh, personal development books. Like, people might think corny books, but I think great books. Books like Think and Grow Rich, Power of Positive Thinking. And I realized, you know, I needed to be – less affected by by defeats i needed to really go for it and i didn't care that was a backup at occidental i said you know sometimes i'm gonna gonna make it to the nfl which is like you can only think that if you're like reading a book like power of positive thinking like or maybe even power of wishful thinking if you think you can make it as a backup occidental to be signed to the nfl but but i became very gritty all of a sudden my psychology shifted my senior year of college i became very gritty we're working extremely hard and i just said you know i'm gonna make it in professional sports somehow or another that's what i want to do like and and so you ask like was there soul searching? Yes. In college, there were times like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, what's going on with me? Do I really love football? Like, but then like when I realized, oh, no, like the reason that you failed isn't isn't because you don't love football or because you, you haven't found your path yet or it's, it doesn't have to do with your talent. It has to do with the fact that the way you've been thinking about this is not effective. It's not serving you. And once I got out of that, I just pursued a, a path in professional sports and I followed it where it's taken me. And not everything has broken my way, but you know what? Enough things have broken my way to be able to still be playing at 40. Most people can't do that. Most people, they don't get the call the next year. And I've kept on getting the call from the team. So I did have soul searching early on. Later on, I realized that I love sports. I wanted to follow my passion. The reason I play isn't because I'm trying to make millions of dollars, obviously. The reason I play is because when you're done, you're done. At high level sports, you know, once you're done, 
it's hard to replicate that. The advice from guys, and I know they're in a far different place than me, but the, the, the fundamental experience is the same. Like Joe Montana, he said, you know, you should never, never stop playing. When, you're, when, when you stop playing, it's hard to replicate that experience. So I'm not saying football is the most important thing in the world. It's not. But in terms of challenging yourself, stretching yourself, to me, that's what it's all about. And so the journey went from being hoping that I was talented enough to, to achieve all these external things to really totally changing my paradigm about what leads to success overall and then changing my paradigm about why I'm even doing this. It's not about the trophies or awards or the whatever. It's about the struggle. It's why someone climbs Mount Everest. It's why someone runs a marathon. Like, is it fun? No, it's not fun. I mean, maybe a little bit. But it's the struggle and there's something within us. There's whatever natural genetic thing. I think most all of us have some of it. I think I have, whether learned or, or innate, I have a, a large aspect of that in my personality. I really love to do challenging things. That's why I've continued to play. And that's that's my path from, from kind of not knowing what my purpose is to really recognize what my purpose is. And that's despite moving different teams, um, the purpose is always stay the same, especially as a pro. I'm incredibly impressed with your mentality for the last 12 years. Because like I said, I know teammates that played in the major leagues that then spent a decade playing in Mexico or spent a decade playing independent ball. And I don't know if I would say they're doing it because they know they're on the right path. And the reason I asked you to kind of tell that story is because a reoccurring theme here, Danny, is to highlight nonlinear paths. That's why I, I wanted you on, not only your background, but your path is nonlinear. And I think it's easy for us to all compare. I certainly do it. It's human nature. And my assessment, this may embarrass you a little bit, but I think you're about to, you're on the precipice of becoming a star in this field. And then many people are going to be comparing their achievements to your academic achievements. And if they're in the middle of a difficult stretch in their path, that may not be a pleasant comparison. So I'm careful with words, but I think it's important for you to highlight failure being a part of your story. I mean, and like you said, you don't transfer six times in college because things are going well. And I didn't know the ins and out of the arena football league, but when I read 21 different teams in 12 years, I'm thinking, well, that's probably indicative of some failures, which may or may not be true. What I want to ask you about is the word failure. On some level, anytime one fails to meet a desired result, it's a failure. Right. And I would have told myself for most of my life that if I don't call an experience that didn't go as I planned a failure, that I'm not being strong, that I'm sugarcoating an experience. However, I've come to find out, and your work speaks to this, that it's not that simple, that how we describe an experience or how we frame an experience is tremendously important. So do you think a lot about the word failure? Do you go back through your journey and, and call out failures? Or are you pretty careful with that term? I think failure can mean a lot of different things. One of the fallacies is that we do any one thing for a single motive. Why'd you get married? I love my wife. Yeah, but like there's a lot, like why'd you live? Like there's a lot of things that go into it. Why was it the right time in your life? Why do you, why do you, are you in the career? You're well, you know, it's something I was interested in. Yeah, but was that the only thing? Like there's, like we have multiple motives. And yeah, like any athlete is going to have a motive to win a championship or to have a very successful year, be the MVP or, or whatever it might be. And to the extent that you don't achieve those every year, is that a failure? I, I guess you could say that. there's nothing nothing wrong with. I mean, I think Michael Jordan said I failed, you know, over and over again in my life. He was talking about the fact that he missed, you know, some important shots. And is it, is it okay to look at that as a failure? Sure. Yeah. I, I don't think you should be like, yeah. I mean, it's always somebody else's fault. It's okay to own it. I think that's what you're talking about with being mentally tough or mentally strong is like owning your own shortcomings. That's that's super important. But that is temporary failure. 
especially if you recognize that you have a larger purpose or a larger set of goals that's driving you. So what's another motive that you're an athlete? Is it just to win MVP? Is it just to win a championship? Hopefully not. In fact, the grittiest people and the most successful people, I don't think that's how they view it. So in order to be gritty, you have to be able to have another game that you're playing. And that game is not about the external. That game is about, kind of what I was talking to earlier, is, is about challenging yourself, pushing, becoming better every day. I don't care if it's Tom Brady, if it's Michael Jordan. Any athlete you want to look at that's Tom something incredible or people in life, they don't view their setbacks as being catastrophic. They view their setbacks as being something that is leading them along a larger path of growth and development. Tom Brady's a guy that I fascinated kind of just studying and we lost the Super Bowl to Philadelphia Eagles. Now he's just over like 550 yards, set a Super Bowl record. I was kind of wrapping up the season and, and on a documentary. And he said, you know, I'm sitting here three days after the Super Bowl and I'm getting my Achilles worked on. And you ask yourself, well, why are we doing this? You know, what are we doing this for? Who are we doing this for? You know, what's, what's the larger reason? And he's like, if you don't have answers to that question, and if you, those answers aren't with a lot of conviction, you should probably be doing something else. And I think that when you have a larger purpose, you don't view a temporary setback as a failure in the sense that it's something that is going to stick with you. But I think that there, there's a difference between viewing things as, as permanent failures, as I was saying, and as temporary failures. And I also think it's important to acknowledge, hey, this didn't work out. You know, I tried to do this. I transferred six times. And by the way, you said, you mentioned earlier, like you said, you don't, you don't transfer because things are going well. I think that's true. But the reason that I left wasn't because I went out there and I was getting beat out. The difference is, is that some people come to adversity and they think it's a sign that they're failing. That's the whole difference of having a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. And when you have a growth mindset, then you just say, hey, this is part of the process. And so for me, the reason why I left, yeah, things weren't going well, but were they really not going well? Should I have been starting my freshman year at BYU or at Oregon State? Or was that just a normal process of growth? But for me, the way I was interpreting life, I thought, well, maybe I need to try something else. I think our interpretations of the nature of any given situation really can influence our subsequent decisions based on that. And let me tell you kind of how I came to that. I don't know you, but I'm reading your bio and I'm seeing six transfers and then I'm seeing 21 different teams in 12 years, which you educated me on that a bit. But I'm saying, here's a guy who has a relationship with setbacks. Here's a guy who has a relationship with failure. and I think that's so important to point out, especially when, like I said, you're about to be a big name in this field. I can just tell the way you talk about your research. I can tell who you speak with and who you work with. I can tell the way you articulate a point. And the topics of talent and grit are so important and there's so much in the zeitgeist. So I'm going, that to me is such an important thing to walk through is saying, hey, my path zigzagged on the way to get here, guys. And sometimes that path turned around and went the opposite direction I wanted it to go. I think for people that are in leadership positions to make that point is so incredibly important for those of us that are still on the path. And we're always going to be on that path. This week, I released a podcast with a brilliant psychologist named Dr. Mickey Hebel at Rice University. You may know who she is. But one of the things we did was talk about what she calls her anti-Vita which is all the ways she was unsuccessful on the way to being successful. And I'm so proud she did that because when I was preparing for that interview, I saw she gave a commencement dress at 36 years old. And you know what I was doing, Danny? I'm going, 
I'm 39. Holy cow. Like, I'm comparing myself. And I just think it's such an important thing. But let's stay on for a couple of more questions. This idea of the importance of words. I had an Olympian on a few weeks ago. And her journey to becoming an Olympian took her 16 years and two failed attempts to make an Olympic team before she made it on her third attempt. And we had this great conversation about the difference between quitting and moving on or closing a chapter. And so given your own personal journey through athletics, and now you focus on topics like grit, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the difference. What is the difference between closing a chapter and quitting? That's a really good question. A really good question. I think the difference is that you don't quit on a hard day, meaning you don't want to quit on a hard day. If, you, if, if something went really bad and like, boy, I'm done because I just had really bad practice or a terrible game or a bad race or whatever, then I think you haven't allowed the balance of emotions to work themselves out and you're just kind of running from that. But there is a time for everyone. You know, it doesn't matter if you've, you're 45 or 25 or 15 where you realize, you know, what I've wanted to do in this path it no longer makes sense for my life. These are deeply personal questions that I don't think there's a real easy answer for anyone. But I think what I would suggest is getting very clear about what you want to do in your life, what makes sense for you, and what, what your heart's calling you to do. If there's that aspect you still wants to do it, you want to do it more than you think it makes sense for you to not do it, then I think there is value in at least trying to continue to see what path is open up. At some point, all of us are going to reach a point where it just no longer makes sense to pursue that. But if you've, if you've exhausted that, you've exhausted what's in your heart for sport or, or for whatever, whatever you're doing, that, and that doesn't need to come you know, in your 40s, like it's coming from, from me or somebody. It can, come, it can come in your teens, whatever. But, but if you've done that, you can truly look at it and say, you know, I've done this and I went through the hard days and I persevered. And this experience, I can take the benefits of it with, uh, of it with me and I can move on in another direction. And there's, there's nothing that is ungritty about that. In fact, it's important to, you need many of those experiences, especially early on, to try multiple things so you can find out, well, what is it that I, that I really want to do? I would just say that when it's quitting is when you let, maybe it's a coach that, that you don't like, or maybe it's a situation you're in that, that doesn't work out, or maybe it's a emotion you have or a game that you had or a difficulty level that you, you know, that, that just, it didn't feel right. And you let this temporary situation dissuade you from doing something that you felt like you wanted to do in a longer term. And I think I think that is the distinction that I would make is that quitting happens when you allow temporary setbacks or temporary emotions, temporary circumstances to influence long-term decisions. Moving on is when you make a thoughtful decision about what is best for you in the long run. I think that's a beautiful answer. Let me you said it's personal. Let me make it personal for you. If you would have moved on from your athletic pursuit Three years ago, six years ago, pick a year. Would that have been quitting for you? It would. It would have depended on. On um, again, I go back to my, my my answer previously. Like you know, it would have been what I thought was best for me in the long run. For me, um, the circumstances have opened up for me to continue to play much more as a hobby now, and do something I love while pursuing things that are better for me in the long run. But if it came to the point where I was like, boy, do I take care of my family, my kids, or do I? travel around the country trying to be the world's best arena football quarterback. No, that's absolutely not quitting. That's just knowing your priorities. And so, no, quitting, negative connotation quitting is not the same thing as ultimately deciding that a pathway moving forward does not involve whatever sport you're doing. 
So no, I, I don't. I don't think for me it would have been quitting. However, because I ultimately determined that football was possible for me, that I was able to still do it to the extent that I have, while also pursuing the longer term goals. Like I guess it wouldn't have been quitting, but um, that that emotion, that sense to play was still in my heart, which is why I continued for it. So I, I wouldn't have been so hard on myself to say I've quit. You know, I had played a decade at that point. You know, I'm a quitter. I wouldn't describe myself that way. But in one sense, I would have been. I would have been crowding out something that was still in my heart, something that was still a dream. I don't want my answer to come across as saying, hey, just always do the thing that you know you feel like is the most buttoned up and traditional way to do things. That's not the way I think that people should live life. I think you want to live life from the heart, live life in a way that you follow your passions and for no other reason that you you care about. And I don't let that disrupt things that are more important. But I think if you still have something that you want to do, my, my advice is absolutely do it. Why not? What else are you doing? I just think there's a ton of value psychologically, emotionally. I, my life is more hopeful because I'm playing football. I want to comment on a word you used that made me think of an experience I had. So use the word hobby. Football's become a hobby. And I actually had an opportunity to speak at Rice University to, of all things, a positive psychology class in this auditorium. And during the question and answer period, one of the students stood up and asked for advice on chasing their passion at their age, a graduating senior. But I said, I wouldn't tell you to chase a passion. I'd tell you to make space for a passion. Oh, I love that. What I was trying to articulate to this student was, it doesn't mean you're a failure if you don't pursue a passion for a living. It doesn't mean you're a failure if you don't pursue a passion at all costs, at the expense of your family, at the expense of your finances. But make space for it somewhere in your life. Maybe it's after work hours. Maybe it's on the weekends. Maybe it's once a month. That, I think, is critical. And your position there of going, even if it's a hobby, I still have passion and purpose in my heart for this sport. I'm going to make space for it. And I I hope that student takes that because I don't think chasing a passion for a profession is, is for everyone. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur. It is full of anxiety, full of tension between your spouse. It's not for everyone. But making space for those things, I think, is critical. Totally. I love that answer. I love your answer to that student. I imagine most people listening to this are coaches or athletes that probably have like a deep passion for something, right? But not everybody has that. Like a lot of people think I'm weird. And not everybody has to go out and pursue. Like pursuing passions, like if you don't sense that you have like a real passion for something, there's, there, there's nothing wrong with letting life unfold. And you'll discover things you love. And you don't have to feel like, Boy, if I don't, you know, wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about, you know, golf or something, that means I, you know, haven't found my path in life. It's like, no, like not everybody's the same. And as you talked about a lot about nonlinear pathways in this, it's like our our interests emerge and and sometimes those interests make sense to pursue as main like the main direction of life. And sometimes they're something that we have to make space for, as you beautifully said. And I think don't stress about feeling like you know the exact next step for your life. It's like it'll work out. Just just make space for things you care about and make wise decisions because sports or whatever other path someone's following, like these are important things. But for me, they don't come before my uh, religious faith. They don't come before my family. So to the extent that um, these things kind of infringe on those things, that that's where I have to make those, those realistic trade-offs and say, Hey, you know, of course I love football. Of course I love spend 24 hours a day just totally dialed in, but because other priorities take precedence, I have to make appropriate amounts of space. And those are, again, that's why again, this is a personal decision. Only you can know. But I think one thing that gets through line and what we're both saying here is how important it is to come to deep clarity as to what your life is about. How can you make these decisions in your life? You haven't thought about like, what do I want my life to be about in the long run? Like looking back on this thing, we're all going to be old, God willing, we'll all be 
a chance to look back at a long, long life and what's important to you? What do you value? And if you don't have clear answers to those questions, how can you ever make a decision about what path should I follow? What, what decision is right for me? You can't. Well, we're going to get to top line goals. So save that thought. But yeah, yeah, some, yeah. some of what you said there may be posted into a quote, because I think we see so much, Danny, on social media about follow your passion, chase your passion. And I've felt this, that it's easy to lack compassion for yourself if you don't have that drive. I think what you said was was beautiful there because all we see on social media nowadays is if you're not following what you're passionate about and pursuing it at all costs, you're failing in some way. And I think the way you just articulated it was beautiful. Well, I'm going to stick on this line of thought of comparing words because I, I find it interesting. This journey that I've been on, I'm sitting down with high-level performers, psychologists, sociologists, athletes, has caused me to think a lot, obviously, about the words I use, the power of the words I use. And I want you to comment on another specific example. Very recently, I found that what I've always thought was grit or resilience might actually be discipline in my life. I am nothing if not disciplined. My diet, my fitness, my reading, my investments, my business, if I set a plan or commit to something, I'm going to prepare and I'm going to see it through. It's just who I am. But I'm not so sure anymore that that's grit. And so I want to ask you, do you see a clear distinction between discipline and grit? And if so, what is that distinction? I do. I do. I think discipline quite often is is an outgrowth of grit, but you can have discipline without grit. So the University of Pennsylvania, we're constantly working with undergraduates who are extraordinarily disciplined. You don't get into Penn or, and you don't get to work with our lab unless you have great track record and you have the discipline to get the great grades and those things. But a lot of these students like have this angst about what they want to do in their life. They really have figured out the game of how to get all the answers right on the midterm and on the final and how to, you know, do the things to, to network, to get in the classes they want or the universities they want. So they, they've got the kind of the, the micro aspect of success down, but the macro aspect of success of like, what's the ultimate pathway? Steve Covey's great book, seven habits, highly effective people. He says like, so many people get to, they climb the top of the ladder of success and realize it was on the wrong wall. And I noticed that a lot of young people, especially really effective young people or really successful young people have done a lot more work learning the, the tricks to move them up the ladder, but not making sure the ladder's on the right wall. So I think that gritty people, you know, so grit is sustained passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Although discipline is a character trait that it certainly helps you if to in order to stay with something for the long run after 21 teams or whatever, like, or whatever pathway you're in, you know, I think you need to have clarity and, and almost a love for, for what you, you do. And when people do that, I'd say that's not that by itself, just falling in love with something it, that by itself isn't great. So there's kind of marrying that passion, that commitment to a long-term goal with the perseverance and part of perseverance is, is discipline. So I just say it's a, it's a combination of those things that makes up grit. I think that's great. And it's so interesting that I'm now 39 years old. And the way I came to this realization is I had the director of performance psychology for the New York Jets on the podcast. And I was describing resilience to her. And she said, I don't think that's resilience, Clay. It's discipline. You can get up at 5 a.m. and work out every single day. But if there's not some sort of intrinsic value tied to it, if there's not some sort of greater purpose, like you were just saying, I don't think you're being resilient. It kind of just blew my mind. And then I had an Olympian named Caroline Burkle on who said the same thing. And I'm going, maybe they're onto something here. Maybe I'm being disciplined, but I better figure out if I'm tying these 
resilient acts to intrinsic value or purpose? And that's that's where that question came from. And this is literally a realization that's happened in the last like four or five months. That's really interesting. That really is interesting. Yeah, resilience towards continuing to come back to to a passion. I think resilience is, at least in the way it's kind of, we, we, it's kind of like operationalized it within within grit. We treat it as part of the perseverance aspect of grit. So when you think about perseverance, what is it? Angela would say it's working hard on good days and it's bouncing back on bad ones. And both of those components make up perseverance. But but you're bringing in kind of a, another point, which is if you're resilient just to be resilient, that is different than being resilient to kind of an intrinsic purpose, which would kind of, I, I think, also be consistent with grit because it ties it back into passion. So I like that. Well, let's move on to the core of your research, which focuses on the idea of talent. I've seen you quoted multiple times saying that you want to change our understanding of talent. And so I think it's important to start with a definition. Why don't you define talent for us? And I did. I stopped in the middle of one of your interviews. You said stop and come up with your own definition. And I stopped the tape and did it. But give me your definition for talent. I don't know that I would say I want to change our definition of talent. Your quote is, I have it here, change our understanding of talent. Fair, fair. Change your understanding. Okay. So, yeah. So, I think when people think about talent, traditionally, if you look at dictionary definitions of talent, it's like an innate capacity or it's something, you know, natural aptitude. However, in modern contexts, in the last 20 years especially, we use talent for everything. I've heard in businesses, they, they use the term like motivation is talent. At least that's not how I grew up thinking of those things are the same thing. It's like you had motivation and that could help your talent, but that, some people think of motivation as talent. Some people think the talent is just like how good you are at something. But there's this there's this aspect of talent that linguistically, historically, where for a long time, for hundreds of years at least, it's, it's meant kind of something about like your innate aptitude for something. And I think when I say change your understanding of talent, I think what I mean is the common assumption, at least that I got growing up, is that course hard work is important, but it's hard work plus talent that leads to exceptional ability. And that you really need this innate capacity. And if you ask, well, what is that innate capacity? That this is where the science gets very flimsy, very flimsy. And people can't say, I mean, even scientists, well, there's a, I won't say this person's name. There's a scientist, respected scientist in expertise literature who says, you know, we don't really know what talent is. It just seems like it's there. Okay. Now, that's not how science works. Science works that you're able to measure something ahead of time. And be able to show that this is a real thing. And then you say, okay, well, how does this work out? How does this predict over the long run? And then you're able to show that when people put in more hours who possess this definable thing, this measurable, definable thing, that they are able to improve faster and ultimately achieve more than other people. But science doesn't really show that. The gene research leads a ton to be desired. There's very little gene research that shows anything about expertise. So I think when I say I want to change people's understanding of talent, I want to say, hey, look, society really, really has bought into this idea of talent. This is the world that we we just live in. It's just like it's almost like you can taste it, feel it, touch it. We, we, we treat it as if it's so real. And yet our perceptions as to who is talented change every year. You know, Matt Liner was the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. Some people thought he was the best quarterback to play college football at one point in time for USC. There were uh, scouts that were watching when he was warming up to the USC game. And they said, boy, when I watch Matt Liner, I get goosebumps and shivers because he reminds me so much of Joe Montana. He just has that it factor. And he's just, he's just remarkable. 
And this is nothing against Matt Leiner. Matt Leiner, I think, was a great college quarterback and maybe could have been a great pro quarterback. But things don't work out for Matt. He wasn't the next Joe Montana. But people were so certain that he was. That's like a Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the opposite story, right? Even he wasn't the starter most of his senior year. And the quarterback, who was it? Drew Henson was the other quarterback at the time. Kirk Herbstreet, the, the ESPN announcer, is saying that, you know, Lloyd Carr, Michigan's coach, he wants to give Brady playing time, but Drew Henson's ceiling, now what that ceiling is just another way of saying talent, is so much higher than Tom Brady's. And he said it was complete, like, like he said it with his, you know, with as much certainty as if I said I'm on a podcast right now. Like, oh yeah, his talent's there. Like we see, did he have a higher ceiling than the greatest football player of all time? I mean, I don't, probably not. I mean, I, in other words, we just, talent is something that we, that is like invisible and not measurable. And we treat it as if it is so obvious. And I think it holds a lot of people back. So when I say I want to change people's understanding of talent, we can talk a lot more about the data, but it leaves a lot to be desired in terms of talent predicts success. Does it? Show me. Prove it. My gut reaction when I stopped your tape was that it's aptitude, that it is some sort of innate ability. But I, I don't know how big a fan you are of philosophy, but I'm a big fan. And Aristotle spoke a lot about aptitude or what I'm calling talent. And he was very clear that that's simply potential, that in order to develop it into a skill, it requires two other things. Number one is coaching, but the most important thing is good habits. But since you mentioned Tom Brady, I want to let's see if this works. Well, well the, the, don't let us come off our skill and talent conversations. That's what's going to get real fun. Okay, let's go back to Tom Brady. We're going we're gonna to come back to it because I want to use Tom Brady to highlight or illustrate my idea of talent. I want to let you either pick it apart or agree with or whatever. Whenever I hear Tom Brady speak about this legendary, he's pissed off because he was passed over by so many teams and he's got this chip on his shoulder. I've always been confused by that statement and I'll tell you why. Because I think it's clear to any athlete that Tom Brady did not prepare for the combine. He didn't put in the necessary effort to be great in college, in my opinion. You, you take one look at his combine photo and you go, that's not a body of someone who prepared. <laughs> Danny, I've heard Tom admit it in interviews. He said he ate like crap. He didn't work out. He's admitting that he didn't prepare. And so I think that's a great illustration of talent. Talent is what got Tom Brady to the combine into Michigan. He had to combine that talent with work ethic and grittiness in the NFL to become the greatest quarterback of all time. I think it's innate ability that got him there. What do you think about that thought line? Well, I mean, have you read his biography? I have not read his biography, no. Yeah, so so Tom Brady was was notorious for being the hardest worker in college. And by the way, I, I, I not that I don't think uh, there are any differences. Like some people are naturally more fit. I know a guy he's playing with recently that is just like 3% body fat. He eats whole, like candy. Like he's, he's terrible. He's just like. And let me be clear. You don't have to look like a bodybuilder to be a quarterback. But my perception is that's not that's not a guy who gave everything he had going into the combine. Uh, I think looks can be deceiving. And I, and I can see where you're coming from. You kind of see that picture like, boy, he kind of looks not great. Um, he looked kind of skinny. And I'm sure he probably could have had better physical habits. But I mean, he, I think he's said as much. But he was known as being a super hard worker in college and, and kind of outworking everyone else that was there. And the reason he got his opportunity was because he ultimately just performed better. But it wasn't like he wasn't watching film. And it wasn't like he wasn't putting in the hours, going to private coaches, working, doing all that stuff. And so when I'm talking about innate aptitude, right, I, I, just, I just think from a scientific perspective, my position is that 
I, I'm sure that there are individual differences in aptitudes for certain abilities. I think to me, some people get more muscular faster than other people. I don't think given all the training in the world, I'm going to run as fast as Usain Bolt. And these are largely constrained by physiological features that are, that are different across humans. Where I think there is less support for the notion of innate ability is in cognitive and neurological differences that you see between experts and, and between people that aren't as good. And kind of the, the data that emerge, I'll give you an example, the meta-analysis I'm working on right now. A few years ago, there was a meta-analysis by some really nice people that I really respect their work. And they said deliberate practice was overblown. And the reason they said it was overblown is because it only explains 20% of the variance in performance in board games. 26%, I think they said. And what that means, basically what they're saying when the New York Times says, oh, it's only 26%. So 74% must be left up to fill in the blank. And when most people fill in the blank, they fill in the blank with, what do you think? Talent, right? So 74% is probably individual differences, right? Because there's people get better at different rates. And so only 26%. Here's what they didn't say. Almost nothing that we measure in social science uh, explains very much variance in anything. So I know I'm getting a little technical right now, but I'll, I'll come to that point that hopefully everyone will appreciate. In social science, anything that we measure, whether it's personality differences, you know, how, how successful gritty people are, or how important a coach is, or any aspect about anything that you can measure, hardly ever approaches 26% of the variance. That's actually very high, large of what's called effect size. So in our meta-analysis, what we did is we basically looked at all of the studies that ever looked at board games, period, and what the effect size was. And we found a similar, actually slightly smaller effect size for the effect of deliberate practice training on expertise. But then we wanted to pick the very best talent measure that psychology has ever come across. And that's IQ. And particularly for board games, right? So IQ is the most, it's, it goes all the way back to Binet and the, the early IQ researchers. And, and we know that IQ predicts all these things. And it it's just has this huge history. And it's supposed to be this great predictor of job performance, et cetera, et cetera. We want to see, well, how does it predict at the highest levels of board? And by the way, if you had to pick something that was a measure of talent in board games, like I think IQ would be for most people right up there, right? It's like across studies, and we look at these studies with thousands of people to play this game and objective measures, there's something called ELO rating. So it's not just like how good you think somebody is or how good someone does on like, you know, laboratory study, but literally they're ranking in real life, like in, in the world. IQ explains approximately 1% of the variance. So deliberate practice training explains 20 times more than the, the most potent, you know, talent measure we have. You know, when I question the people's understanding or the importance or even the existence of talent, how we think it is, I'm just basically going back to the actual scientific data that is currently available. I don't know that talent or any aspect about, you know, individual differences in, in how our brains work or, or nervous systems work is playing a very big role at the highest levels. Now, one last thing, I know I'm giving you long answers today, so I apologize about that. No, you, that, by the way, I'll just stop and say that number you just quoted shocked me. 1%. I, if you would have asked me to guess, and I've watched you for a bit and read some of your research, that number still shocks me. So that's, keep going. Right. So, so and, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to publish this, but I can share with you the, the data. And then that's, and by the way, that's consistent with also, that's consistent with talent researchers. And we're not the only ones that are finding this because we're looking at a lot of the same papers. Here's what's interesting. So IQ tends to matter a lot more, at least seemingly, at the early stages of learning. And that's because what is IQ? It's a measure of kind of how much you can hold in your working memory, a lot of it. It's a me measure of, of kind of your ability to, to manipulate new ideas quickly. 
and to make sense of them. And so whether it's in chess or music, what they found is that people have higher IQs in the early stages, they perform better. And it explains more variance in the early, like when you're a novice. The prediction, though, that we assume that most of us believe, most of us believe about talent is the people that are better earlier are going to be the people that if they just put in a little time, they're going to get increasingly better. So my IQ is allowing me to go at 80 miles per hour of improvement, but your IQ is allowing you to go at 120 miles per hour of improvement. Or the more hours that we spend on this thing, the further and further you're going to get ahead of me. Actually, that doesn't support that. The opposite happens. Over time, what happens is, at least you know, statistically seems to happen, is that IQ matters less and less. Why is that? Well, what cognitive scientists think is that Early on, we are relying on things we we're relying on our ability to, to manipulate information we've never become familiar with. But as we invest in deliberate practice, our brains develop what's called long-term working memory. And that's as true for learning how to throw a baseball as it is to know how to play chess. And, and basically that is your brain develops mental representations that enable you to kind of circumvent those initial differences in innate capacity. And so when I say talent doesn't work the way we think it does, I'm just saying field of science right now. To my knowledge, and I've spent a lot of time on this, doesn't have a lot of data to say, hey, we can measure something at day one and know it's predictive at year 20. But the opposite seems to be really true about the time that you invest in the right environments. And by the way, it's not just like deliberate practice. It doesn't just mean I'm going out there if you're a baseball pitcher. It doesn't mean you're just going out there and throwing like a barn. It's like the time that you spend with the right pitching coach in the right environment, that is overwhelmingly uh, seems to be more uh, more predictive of, of ultimate success than, than anything does the data show it to be counterproductive as if if I'm talented as a 10-year-old, I imagine I don't see the need to go out and work as hard as someone who's less talented. I, I, that's where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought the researcher was going to say, hey, look, when I'm head and shoulders above everyone else, I have a natural human inclination to not work as hard. I'm not super familiar on the role of perceived talent and predicting effort over time. Angela and I have had this conversation recently. We, we think it can go two ways. It could go the way you suggested, which is, hey, I'm really good. I don't need to work very hard. Or it could go the way of, hey, I think I have a special gift. I need to work hard so that I can actualize it. I think both could be true. And ultimately, those, those two kind of beliefs might all end up evening out. Uh, I think Angela's research shows that grit and um, talent measures, whether that talent measures like athleticism or IQ, that they're either uncorrelated or even slightly negative, negatively correlated, which support what you're saying, which is this idea that when you are, you know, gifted, maybe you don't think you need to work as hard. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not certain how that's going to hold up over time. It seems to be orthogonal or meaning like unrelated. Like we don't motivation and perceptions that I'm talented or not seem at this point at least seem not not a ton of strong um, statistical relationships between those two ideas. But the data certainly shows that spotlighting talent to a great extent is counterproductive. And what I think you were getting at is that this seems to show up in areas where the definition of greatness or world class are a little more murky. For instance, you mentioned Usain Bolt. I mean, in the in the 100 yard dash, it's pretty clear what world class is. And I imagine innate ability and talent matters more in the 100 yard dash than being a great parent. Maybe this is helpful. What I did was I separated greatness from excellence because for me, I'm defining greatness as world class, as Usain Bolt, whereas I think excellence is much more mundane. I wrote an article to my staff, gosh, five years ago about excellence being a, a habit, not an act, that excellence in reality is mundane, trivial decisions or what seem like trivial decisions made in succession time and time again. 
And I think maybe by defining greatness as something a little different, I don't know if that's helpful. No, I, I like that. I think the idea of you're going to be great in terms of you're going to be a member of the long term, that's different than kind of personal excellence. I think that's a, a very useful idea, right? Angela recently wrote a blog about not not basing our lives on like uh, between person differences, not focusing so much on am I better than the next person? Am I better than the, but they're really focusing on within person differences. Am I better than I was the day before? And I think that that speaks a lot to this notion of, of excellence as you kind of are defining it. The point I'm trying to make is the innate ability or talent probably matters more in the 100-yard dash than it does in things that you could argue are much more important. You mentioned earlier your faith in your family, uh, your relationships, those things that you can be great at, you can be excellent at. And I would actually argue that success is pretty mundane. Success is trivial decisions made thousands of times in succession. And that's what I argued to my staff. And the word I use is extraordinary. And I don't remember whose quote this is, but the quote is, you don't have to do extraordinary to be extraordinary. And the point I was trying to make to our staff is, if you show up on time every day, if you damage a car, you report it. If you treat everyone around you with honor, dignity, and respect, none of those acts in themselves are extraordinary. But if you do them all, time and time again, day after day after day, you're extraordinary and we want you on our team. And that was the point I was trying to make. Yes, totally agree with that. I love I love this idea that uh, success is this this cumulative effect of really small decisions. I think that's absolutely true. Seems, seems like Aristotle, Aristotle said similar things, right? That's kind of a very Aristotle notion, right? Well, I have the big sign right behind me that says happiness because Aristotle says the telos of life, the goal of being human is eudaimonia flourishing but loosely translated as happiness so my wife lets me keep this in our game room (laughs) but anyways let's linger on success for a bit because this is another quote you summed up your research by saying that you study the factors that lead to success so i thought we should spend some time figuring out what success is it's a topic that comes up on this podcast a lot and my anecdotal little study here on the examined athlete is that most of us define success poorly and i include myself for most of my life in that success for me was financial transactions for 35 years. And it ended up making me financially successful, but I don't think it ended well. So I want to ask you, first question, how do you define success now? And I'd also like to know if your definition of success evolved over the years. Let me answer the second one first. Absolutely, my my definition of success has evolved over the years. And let me also just say as a caveat to what I'm about to say, that um, when I'm talking about studying factors that lead to success scientifically, I'm, I am defining that kind of in a, in a more objective sense. I want to know, like my research focuses on what, what differentiates people that are the, the outliers. Like that's, that's my research, right? So success in, in that sense, that, that's what I mean, like my research statement. However, internal philosophy to get on more clay language or philosophical kind of focus here. I don't think, like I'm assuming you don't think that it is uh, useful or helpful or healthy to think of success in purely objective and particularly like extrinsic forms like did i do better than this person like Matt, i'm assuming you've read some john wooden you seem like a guy that's read some john wooden i've read a little john wooden everyone loves john Wooden. how does he define success success and I, i'm going to mess up the direct quote but it's, it's something along the lines of success is the satisfaction that you have from doing the very best you can with what you're capable of doing based on your life circumstances your abilities whatever that is something that's within our control and if we can think about our life being successful based on just continually making minor improvements based on small decisions, like, like you were saying, then I think that allows us to, to actually be more objectively successful. Why? Because we're not distracted by all the comparisons that are not useful. Instead, we're just maximizing our own 
uh, internal capacity, whatever, whatever that is. And so, yeah, that's how I try to think about success. Do I ever get caught up in thinking that's less useful, less helpful? Sure. But I try to bring myself back, bring myself back to center. Hey, I wrote down Angela's definition because in one of your conversation where you guys were both on the panel, I thought was beautiful and spoke to me. She says success is harmony in your life. It's not achievement. It's about showing up consistently as the person you want to be. It's about your life making sense to you. And the way she articulated that just I thought was beautiful. That spoke to me, especially from someone who put achievement as success for a lot of years. More than that, put others recognizing my achievement as success for a lot of years, which I think is the real corrosive part. Let's move on. This is a bit of a left turn, but I'm really curious to ask someone like yourself about this because I've read a bit about survivorship bias. And I think it's clearly fun to study Tom Brady, Bill Gates, Michael Jordan, the, the like, and that's who we've mentioned a bunch. But as I read more about survivorship bias, I'm curious to get your thoughts on it and how do you correct for this in what you do? Totally. Do I think that everything that Tom Brady does has led to him being the best, the most successful, or Michael Jordan? Let's take Tom Brady as, as a great example, actually, because we have some research on this that can, that can support this. Why don't you tell us all what survivorship bias is? I just kind of thought we better define that. Is I think we're referring to is this notion that there are a certain amount of people, survivors, or people who are successful, and you kind of you kind of extrapolate everything that they tell me if I'm getting this wrong. But you extrapolate everything. I'll, I'll do it. Let me let me do it. I wrote down a definition. My definition here from my study: survivorship bias. For those of you listening, is the idea that we spend a lot of time learning from winners and forgetting about the huge number of losers with comparable effort, skill and grit causing us to overestimate the causality. I think, I think that's right. And it's related to what I was getting at. So let's, let's take Tom Brady, for example. So this is a, a, a prime example. So you assume that because Tom Brady is successful, therefore, everything that he did has led to him becoming successful. But you forget that there are a lot of people that have done similar things that weren't successful. And so here are the kind of errors that you might make if you assume that everything Tom Brady does leads him to being successful. You could think, for example, that um, drinking enough water uh, makes it so you don't have to wear sunscreen. And because he wrote, he wrote this in his book, he's like, I just drink so much water that I don't have to have sunscreen. And so therefore, like, that's one component of a really successful athlete is, boy, just don't wear sunscreen, drink a lot of water, maybe like Tom Brady, right? This is like in, like in the extreme kind of silly way you can think about it. There's a lot of things that if you just study successful people and you think that all of these are leading indicators of success, you can miss the bigger picture. What you need to do, kind of what I was getting back, talking about earlier, is you need to have somewhere where you can measure something at day one and see whether or not that, how that leads to success at day 1000 or day 10, you know, whatever, just like way out in the future. If you just assume that everything that really successful people do is what's making them successful, you can end up taking wrong turns. You can end up following them blindly because, because you think it's going to be the same. Way. But science has a better method, which is kind of having a hypothesis, being able to test it over time. One thing we know from like, for example, really successful quarterbacks is that much more variance actually is explained by its word I've used a lot. Much there's a lot, a lot more predictive power in the, the quality of the environment of the team around them than anything about the quarterback themselves. But we don't think that way, right? We think, boy, it's just it's just something really unique about about Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes or other great quarterbacks, and we forget that so much of success in, in this example at least comes from the from the environment, from the, the team that you're with. And so I think I think there there is a and maybe this is where you where you wanted me to go with this, but I think there is a flaw in that. And and the other flaw is here's here's a, a bigger flaw in survivorship bias 
is thinking that because things haven't worked out for you the same way, that you are not as worthy or not as not as valuable or whatever. Because like maybe you worked super hard. Maybe you did all the right things. Maybe you followed the TV 12 method. Maybe you, you know, whatever. Like you did everything and it didn't work out for you. And and you said, well, you know, I must be worth, I must have failed. My my journey wasn't meaningful. The truth is, is that like there are so many factors that lead to objective success that it's just, it's just, it can't work out for everybody. There's only one world's best and then there's everybody else. I think the the challenge for an athlete is following the set of practices that I think are, are, are most likely to lead to their success. And then, and then letting go of the outcome, letting go of the outcome. Like if you have done what you think and what in your heart, like is, is most consistent with who you want to be as a player, as an athlete, and you you follow that pathway and you're not going to be perfect, but you consistently tried that's success, that's success. And just because it didn't work out the way that insert famous person, you know, uh, that their career worked out. It, that it, you, there's a ton of different circumstances that that maybe had they had the similar circumstances. You maybe want to work out the same way for them. So, I, w- I want to tell you a story. I think you'll like. One of the guests I had on is a gentleman named Philip Umber. Philip Umber is one of 23 individuals in MLB history to throw a perfect game. He threw it for the White Sox. And when I asked him what he learned throughout his career, one of his quotes that kind of blew me away was, "Hard work doesn't always win." And I think that's what you're getting at when you study those that give equal effort yet don't succeed. The lesson for me is exactly what you're saying, is that the achievement is not the story. The achievement can't be the the top line goal. It it can't be where you place your value. One of the things we walked away with from that conversation, which I encourage any young person to go listen to Philip speak, because he had a lot of struggles in his career also. He was the third overall pick right behind Justin Verlander. And he said... I wanted my career to be Justin Verlander's, and it wasn't. I mean, the guy still made millions and millions of dollars through a perfect game, but he was still coming to this realization that the only way hard work would win is if the work itself was the win. And I thought that was a pretty pretty that. cool thing to talk about. We'll, we'll move towards kind of wrapping this up, but why don't you tell us... Can I tell you what that's called, by the way, what researchers call that? Like, Go. I, yeah, 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 yeah. They call that goal fusion. What that means is they've... When you when you have a top level goal like be the best baseball player I can be or Angela's top level goal, use psychological science to help kids thrive. When you can find a way to make the daily things that you're doing, the mundane things you're talking about, going to practice. Kobe Bryant, in his case, he said, "I would get up at 4 a.m. and I would work on my knee, and I'd shoot hundreds of shots before practice. I do the same thing after practice. I do it over and over again." He said, "But you know, people think the dream is the, the six or five trophies I have five you know, the MVPs, but the dream really is 4 a.m. It's goal fusion. You fuse those mundane, those things that people don't think are fun, that hard work with your higher level, your deeper purpose, that other, that other definition of success that we've been talking about. And that, why am I still playing? Because I have a degree of goal fusion. I feel like when I'm playing, I am living my, my highest values. And so everything feels meaningful to me. It doesn't matter whether or not we win championships or we don't. It's like I am out there expressing myself, getting better, being more like me. So I think that's something we should all move towards. How can I take what's most meaningful to me and feel like my daily work, the daily grind is an expression of that and, and get away from the, get away from the, the kind of the external validation. Those are, those things are wonderful and important, but, but that's not really where the, the true uh, enjoyment fulfillment lies. Tell us how you find a top line goal. What would be a strategy if you're struggling finding this top line goal? What's a strategy to find one? So, and maybe you've already prefaced this for listeners, but just really briefly, when you talk about a top line goal, what you're talking about is a goal that 
everything you're doing in life can kind of harmonize within that singular thing. So some of us might feel like we have a lot of what's called goal conflict, where I really want to pursue this opportunity, but this other opportunity conflicts with it and life is not harmonious. Gritty people are really able to find, even if it's an app for something very abstract, in fact, it usually is, some top level um, harmonizing purpose towards everything you're doing and everything else, whether it's the roles that you have as a mother or father or business owner or, or an athlete and you know your yearly goals then going down all the way to your daily goals, all those things are under that top line goal. Okay. So how do you find that? How do you find something that can bring everything into a, to a common theme? One of the things to do is just start asking yourself the question, why? Why am I doing this? There's some work by a researcher by the name Bettina Hockley. She has something called the why ladder, which is think of anything you're doing this week. Like, think of something like you had to do a podcast today, you probably to set things up. But why, why would you want to do that? Why did you want to set up this podcast? Well, I thought Danny's research was a little interesting and wanted to have a conversation with him and you know grow my audience. Well, why is that important to you? Well, uh, that's important to me because you know I really want to create great content and I hope to continue to advance or learning more and more insights. Well, why is that important to you? Well, because at the end of the day, I feel like my athletic career and other people's athletic careers where they really learn to, you know, more of who they are and they, you know, life becomes more meaningful when they understand the, the, the inner game. Well, why do you care about helping other people understand their inner game? Well, because, because that's what life's about. Well, once you get to that point where it's like, I don't really have another reason. I don't really have another why. And I'm just making up your why ladder for why you're at this podcast as an example. And you can pick anything you're doing. Once you ask yourself why enough, you eventually get to your ultimate reasons, your ultimate concerns. You get to the most self-concordant, meaning like the things that really feel like they're you. If you don't ask yourself why, you can end up being like, you might be a why I'm doing this podcast. Well, to be honest with you, I mean, I booked Danny because he was just available. I don't really care what he has to say. Like, why am I doing this podcast? Maybe I should be doing something else. Maybe I need to find something that is more aligned with my ultimate mission. So asking yourself that why question can help you identify those themes that are true with your heart. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to be crystal clear. This is a lifelong thing. In fact, Angela's top level goal recently switched. It used to be for as long as I knew her, was use psychological science to help kids thrive. More recently, she changed it to increase psychological literacy. Now, why those changes are the way they were, we haven't had that discussion. I, I think I can make some guesses, but I won't speak for her. She can come on and tell us why. She should come on. <laughs> but even Angela, somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about what her top level goal is, she's changing that and it's evolving and, and we learn more about ourselves. So, so I, think, I think that question, why, and asking it over and over and over again, like Tom Brady said, you know, why are we doing this? What are we doing this for? Who are we doing this for? What's our reason? That's going to help you find those things in your life that you can organize everything under, start creating that sense of goal fusion and, and, uh, and ultimately increase your grit to help you achieve more of what you want in life. I mean, maybe this is helpful for listeners, but my why, and it feels a little bit like hubris to think I can do this, but is to impact and influence others in a positive light. That's why I want to bring someone like yourself on because I see something in you and I see this journey that I think people can learn from. And I see a research topic that I'm incredibly passionate about. And if I can influence and impact one or two or three people, then I think that's a success. And that that's what it's all about. And like I say, even as I say that, I'm going, oh, that seems a little bit like egotistical, but that's the goal. That really is the goal. Well, let's end here. Zoom out. Let's zoom out from the individual and look at a society. How does a society or a culture become more gritty? It's a great question. I love, but by the way, I love what you said. I commend you for that, that purpose that you have. I think that's really cool. We need more people that. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. How does society or culture become more gritty? I think in, in many of the same ways that, that an individual becomes more gritty. And that is, what is, what is your purpose? Why, why are you doing what you're doing? So United States right now, we're going through kind of a, a check. We don't quite know at this point, I think, time how we feel about our history. Uh, I don't know if you probably have listeners in other countries, but, but in, in our 
country right now, we're going through a check where we're trying to really understand what are our values and, and how do we feel about the people that came before us and kind of set up uh, certain standards and visions for the future. And, and I think without knowing that, without having conviction about what your purpose is, there, there was a point in time where America was thought of, and still is in many people's eyes, was thought of as kind of the, the exemplar of, of freedom to the world and was a place where people could go and, and live out their dreams. And I think for some reasons, some valid reasons, I think that some of that's been brought into, brought into question. But I think the overall effect of that is that, that people have less passion about pursuing something culturally. And maybe that can explain at least some of the, the problems. Not, I'm getting way beyond what my research would show. I'm just kind of theorizing or philosophizing. But, but let's, let's get more, more concrete. Let's think about an example of recently Ukraine was, was invaded by Russia. Now, Ukraine's a country that has recently become more democratic, that people, at least seemingly from the outside looking in, have a, have a real sense of, of what their mission is, they're, of their, establishing their freedom. And so how have they responded to this invasion? Well, the stories are incredible. You have people picking up landmines with, with their bare hands. You have families separating, but the men going and bravely fighting, kind of pushing back an army that is, what, 10 times their size? It's because they have a vision or a conviction of what they're trying to be. And that's not make, to, to make a, a America wrong or anything. Like that. We're all figuring it out. But at this moment in history, Ukraine seems to have a clear vision of who they are, which is allowing them to surpass what I think people thought was possible for them. On a smaller level, you know, Microsoft's a company that I talk about a lot when I, when I get a speech or something. It's a company that really from the turn of the century until about 2014 kind of flatlined in terms of their valuation. Um, then Satya Nadella became their, their leader. He, he did a couple things. One is he, he kind of tried to instill this notion of a growth mindset into their culture. But then he also gave them a really powerful why, which is he went around and he talked to all the people in all the different divisions. Said, what's, really, what's really meaningful? What's really valuable to us as a company? And the theme that emerged was everyone cared about empowering other people to achieve more. And so that's pretty close to their, I think, what their, their mission statement is, empowering uh, every person or organization to, to achieve more. And he didn't just say it one time. He, every, every meeting every, became kind of a campaign to help the people get in touch with what those values are, helping people to achieve more. Now, what happened to Microsoft after that? They became within five years, I think they, their company overall valuation grew like 350%, some insane amount like that. At some point in time, they're the most valuable company in the world. It's all because they built, in my mind, a culture of grit where they became very crystal clear about what their top-level purpose was. It wasn't sell X amount of you know, Windows software. You know, it was really just about empowering other people. And that, that mission, that vision, and that growth mindset that they brought along with it changed the employees from the top down and bottom up. So I think as, as a culture, knowing what we stand for, why we stand for it, is incredibly important. That's, a, that's a coach building a team, a CEO, an entrepreneur, a mother, a father with their family. What, why are we doing this? What are we here for? I'll keep on going back to those words. What are we doing this? What's our purpose? Knowing that and talking about that, discussing that, and, and, and building passion behind that, I think is how you, to me, the, the biggest uh, lever to, to increasing grit in society. I think it's a wonderful answer, man. I can't thank you enough for all this time you've given me. I am clearly passionate about what you're studying and what you're doing. I think you're I think you're doing some awesome things in, in life, bud. So thank you for sharing it with me. I appreciate it. Clay, super fun to visit with you. I think what you're doing is wonderful and I look forward to learning more about podcasts and checking some of these things out in the future. Thanks for having me on.